in, uh, I want to begin this morning as we take a look at God's Word by, I'm going to read all of John chapter 20. Um, We're going to be looking in just a moment at verses 24 through 29, but I want to remind us of where we are in the in the story of the the storyline of the of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's a couple of reasons that I want to do this, that I want to read this chapter. Um, One is that it's it's been a couple of weeks since we have been in John chapter 20 here in John's gospel. So it will help us to get up to speed and remind us of what is happening here. But also because we're going to be looking at a story, a passage that's commonly taught to be about doubting Thomas. Back in the, well, I'll just tell you, late 70s, early 80s, when I was a kid, um, my grandmother had a kid's book that we would read, and it was called Doubting Thomas. And I have no idea where that book is today. I kind of wish I still had it just for sentiment, um, sentimentality. Um, I don't really remember anything about the book except uh, I, think, I think I can remember the cover, the picture. I think I can remember Thomas looking slightly angry, maybe a little bit indignant as he pointed at his hand in the cover of that book. And in my memory, at least, I don't want to be unfair to a book because I don't really remember that this is what it was doing, but in my memory, at least, the point that I took away from the book was, don't be like Doubting Thomas. But I don't think that's the point of this passage. And so I want to to read the whole of chapter 20 of John so that we can understand the context of what's happening in this interaction between Jesus and the apostle, or the one who will become known as the apostle, Thomas. So, let's read John chapter 20. It begins like this. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white standing where the, or sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, 
For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's just pray one more time. Father, I pray that you would give us what we need this morning. We are a needy people. I pray that we would not disbelieve, but that we would believe, that we would confess with Thomas, my Lord and my God. Give us ears to hear, Father. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I've been saying for a long time, and I'm not the only one, that the, um, the gospel of Jesus Christ is primarily a truth claim. This is where it has to begin. So when Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, he said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter responded with, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus goes on to proclaim that he would would build his church on the rock of this confession. Jesus' true identity, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, his true identity is important and it's the basis of our faith. And it's not backed up by feelings, but by the truth. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Or as Thomas confesses here, my Lord and my God. So with all due respect to a a song, a hymn that I actually like, you ask me how I know he lives? He lives because the scriptures proclaim that he lives, he is risen, and God's word is trustworthy and true no matter what's going on in my deceitfully wicked heart. Or, um, to take a contemporary song to task, God's not dead, he's surely alive, and he's living, 
He's risen, ascended into heaven, and is at the right hand of the Father with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him, as the book of Hebrews tells us. And so the confession, my Lord and my God, or you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, this confession is backed up with proof, with evidence. You can clearly see this evidence from really even just these last two chapters of John's gospel, really all throughout, even in the last two verses of John's gospel. That's exactly what John has been laying out for us, those last two verses of chapter 20. We will get to those, Lord willing, next Lord's Day. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, following an, uh, an horrific um, crucifixion for sins, the resurrection is the ultimate proof that Jesus is who he claimed to be, who the apostles claimed him to be. He is the Christ. He is the Savior of his people. He is the Son of the living God. He is God in the flesh. He is the Lord. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul wrote when he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He takes takes that truth claim of the gospel of Jesus Christ and he lays out the evidence and essentially says to them, you can go and ask the eyewitnesses yourselves. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read just verses 1 through 11. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Here it is. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised, Raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appealed, appeared also to me, Paul writes. He says, For I am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So whether then it was I or they, so we preach and you believe. This world have us believe that the doctrine of the resurrection, the teaching of the resurrection, is something that Jesus' followers developed over time. Um, as if the story of Jesus was simply a legend or, or, or folk tale, like King Arthur or Robin Hood. They would have us to believe that at first there was no thought of a resurrection. But instead, over time, the church fathers continued to develop this idea until eventually the whole church was convinced. In fact, one prominent skeptic teaches, without any proof, that the idea started, the idea of the resurrection started when Peter had some sort of psychotic episode, and he convinced everyone else. But the opposite is actually true. At best, the disciples struggled to wrap their minds around it. They were like us. See, skeptics today, those who say, no, there is no resurrection, 
those who deny the truth that Jesus rose from the dead, they're starting with this presupposition that the resurrection is impossible. And you know what? The resurrection is impossible. That's why it's a miracle, right? Because God did it. Well, these skeptics would have us believe that the ancients were more superstitious than we are. After all, we believe in science, right? But we need to beware of what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. This idea that because we have made such, such technological advancements, such scientific discoveries, that, that we're simply smarter than these more primitive cultures from hundreds and thousands of years ago. They were easily duped by the crazy claims that, that a savior, their Savior had risen, but we are smarter than that. We believe in science. But I would remind you that we are no, no less superstitious than they were. We give legal personhood to rivers. Did you know that? We give legal personhood to rivers in order to protect them, but not to unborn children. We're struggling to understand, as a society, basic math problems. And human X and Y chromosomes really are beginning to confuse us. But let me illustrate um, that the disciples are just as skeptical to the claims of the resurrection as we would be. We need to do this by looking at something that Peter had said right after he made that famous confession in Matthew chapter 16. Let me just read. It's Matthew 16, verses 21, 22, and 23, which says this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, that is Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter's reaction would be how we react too. Now, right there in that passage in Matthew 16, Peter's probably missing the resurrection because he's focused on the idea that, that Jesus would be killed, and he can't get his mind around that. But throughout the Gospels, it's very clear that Jesus' disciples cannot comprehend the concept of their Messiah dying and rising again. They don't believe it until he appears to them preaching peace and showing them his wounds in that passage right before us, right before ours today. This is not a gradual development of this doctrine over time. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was not developed over time with more and more appearances added to the folklore by the apostles. The fact is, when you line up all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are probably about five appearances of the risen Christ on that very first Lord's Day, that very first Easter, five different groups of people or individuals. And then there were probably about five more appearances spread over the next 40 days, and then there was one more appearance, and that was to the Apostle Paul. That's what Paul himself tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, also in Acts. And just for the sake of full disclosure, we could probably count Stephen seeing the ascended Christ standing in heaven, ready to welcome him into his eternal rest, Acts chapter 7. 
And then, of course, we could count John's visions throughout the book of Revelation. Here's my point, and this is my premise for today. Our task of evangelism, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, it isn't any more difficult than theirs was. Our task of evangelism is not any more difficult than it was for them. The mission is the same. Proclaim the gospel. Tell them the truth that Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures so that they might confess my Lord and my God, so that they might believe. So that's my premise, that our task of evangelism, telling the good news, is the same now as it was then. So let's look at this conversion of Thomas, and and as we do, I want to give you four aspects of evangelism that are very common throughout time. What I mean is that there there are four common elements that are present whenever you lead someone to Christ, whenever somebody comes to the faith, to put their faith in Jesus Christ. And I would argue that only one of these elements is not always present, but rather is almost always present. That's just sort of a disclaimer. This is the first one. You'll understand when we get into this. But the other three are always present. Let me give you all four, and then I think this will um, make sense. They're this. Persistence, intervention, confession, and blessing. Persistence, intervention, confession, and blessing. So we'll begin with persistence. Look at verses 24 and 25. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. So I'll just say right at the outset that the reason I believe that this element is almost always present is because it is possible that someone would repent and believe in Jesus immediately upon hearing the gospel for the very first time. Of course we believe that's possible, right? But you know as well as I do, and our experience of sharing the gospel, that that's not the norm. Thomas, I believe, is the norm there's going to be some persistence needed. So let's talk about Thomas. All four Gospels in the book of Acts uh, all mention Thomas by name, Uh, but only John really gives us that much detail about him. And the first thing that we see about him is these two names here, Thomas, one of the 12, called Twin. Thomas called the twin, or some versions might say Didymus, and if it says twin, there's probably a footnote, and it says, or Didymus down at the bottom. Didymus is the Greek word. Uh, Thomas, Didymus, both of those words mean twin, so probably he had a twin. But John is doing here is he is simply and very specifically identifying this man. He's telling us who he is. This is a real person. And by the time time John writes his gospel, Thomas had to have been well-known in Christian circles. Probably, especially in India, where history tells us, tradition at least, that he brought the gospel there. Again, 
That's not in the scripture. It's just um, tradition. We believe that that's probably where he went. But let me give you three other things that we know about Thomas. First, we know that he was one of the 12. This is important. He'd followed Jesus in his ministry. He had served alongside Christ. Thomas was one of those who had picked up a a basket full of leftover loaves when Jesus fed the thousands. He had seen Jesus walk on water. Thomas, with his own eyes, had seen Jesus heal the sick, give sight to the blind. Not that long ago, he'd been an eyewitness of a very not-dead Lazarus walking out of his tomb where he had been very dead for three days. Thomas saw all of these things. Thomas had been with Christ and seen his signs. Jesus had washed Thomas's feet that night, just a little over a week before this. Thomas was one of the twelve. Secondly, for some reason, and the scripture doesn't give us the answer to this, but for some reason, Thomas was not with them a week earlier. He was not with them on that first resurrection day. The scripture, again, scripture doesn't tell us why, but J.C. Ryle makes this observation, and I think it's worth considering. He says this, he said, Thomas was absent the first time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after his resurrection, and consequently, Thomas missed a blessing. Of course, we have no certain proof that the absence of Thomas could not admit of explanation, yet at such a crisis in the lives of the eleven, it seems highly improbable that he had any good reason for not being with his brethren, and it's far more likely that in some way he was to blame. Ryle goes on to point out the imperative that we assemble with the saints so that we don't miss out on the blessings of God as Thomas did that first Easter Sunday, that first Lord's Day. So that's something to consider. But at any rate, he was not with the church that week prior, and so he missed out on the rejoicing and the blessing. Third, we we also have one other bit of info about Thomas from earlier in John's gospel. John chapter 11, verses 14 to 16, says this. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Let me just, I've never, I don't think I've done this before. Let me just tell you what I preached when I preached that sermon. It was in, I had to look it up, it was in August of 2019. So we were in um, John chapter 11 in August of 2019. And here's what I said about that then. I said, the disciples wouldn't understand the significance of death and resurrection until they see Jesus face to face. We see this here in in these verses, this chapter. And I would argue that we probably won't either. I don't think we'll understand the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ until we are in glory seeing him face to face. We're going to grow in our faith. We will plumb the depths of the scriptures to strengthen our faith. Our faith, we will scale the heights of our faith as we learn to trust in the one who is faithful and true. And we will be like Thomas 
whom we usually remember for his doubt, but here, that is in John chapter 11, I don't think we can separate those verses, 14, 15, and 16. See, Lazarus is dead. Let's go to him. Let's die with him. And in reality, the him there that Thomas says in verse 16, it could be Jesus. Let's go and die with Jesus. Or it could be Lazarus, but it doesn't really matter. I don't think this is doubting Thomas. I don't think this is sarcastic. I don't think Thomas is being sarcastic there. I think it's devoted Thomas. I think it's courageous Thomas. Even though he still misunderstood, even though he didn't, still didn't fully understand the things that Jesus was saying, I think that Thomas is still faithful. And though his belief may falter later, as ours so often does, he's saying, even without understanding, that to follow Christ means to take up your cross and go and die with him. But this death is not a death that leads to death. It leads to resurrection and life everlasting. So let's go and die with him that we may live with him forever. Now again, I don't think Thomas understood all of that. And I think that's clear from today's passage. But I also believe that it's not entirely fair to call him doubting Thomas either. It's not any more, he's not any more doubtful or skeptical than the others had been, or that you and I would be. Yes, he did not believe, but this disbelief is common to man. Having said that, remember John chapter 14. Verses 5 and 6, Thomas said to Christ in John 14, 5, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said that in the presence of the disciples, specifically to Thomas. Thomas was not just some brainless follower eager to drink his leader's Kool-Aid. Thomas is courageous, yet he asks questions. And he's also persistent. We can see that here. But he's not the only one who is persistent. Look again at the first sentence of verse 25. It says, So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. They told him. This was even the tense of the words here. This was not a passing, oh, by the way, guess who we ran into? This was not a, hey, guess who was at church last week? You'll never believe it. They kept telling him. They continued to tell him that they had seen the risen Christ. It's safe to assume that they had told him of of Peter and John running to the tomb that morning and finding it empty. They told him of, of what had happened to Mary Magdalene. They told him how Jesus had appeared in the room with them and what he had said. And Thomas had to have noticed that something was different about them. There was a change in their demeanor. Look at how excited they are. We have seen the Lord. They are rejoicing because Jesus had come to them just as he said he would and that he had come preaching peace. Remember that Jesus also that week earlier had commissioned them. Look again at verses 21, 22, and 23 above. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. 
As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So think about this. Put these passages together. In those verses... Jesus has just given the disciples, the church, those who are assembled there that day, he has given them this this great commission. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. He's given them the Holy Spirit, breathed on them the breath of life, eternal life. And he has also given them preaching authority, the keys to the kingdom that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Verse 23 And in their first act of obedience, he has sent them. So so as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And in their first act of obedience, in the very next section of Scripture, along comes Thomas. And they evangelize him. They preach the gospel to him. And just as Jesus had sent them to do, we have seen the Lord. And even though Thomas was one of them, Remember, he'd seen all of the signs that Jesus had done. He had been with Jesus. He knew, he had a personal relationship with Jesus. He knew Jesus personally, yet he doesn't believe. He wants evidence. He wants to see with his own eyes. Now, just stop here for a minute and think about the times you have shared the gospel. If we're honest... This is most of our evangelism goes something along these lines. We share the gospel, we share the gospel, we share the gospel, and people refuse to believe. They say, well, that's, that might be true for you. That's good for you. We have the message. We've been sent. We have the Holy Spirit to help us and, and guide us, yet we just, in our own power, We just can't convince them to believe. Why? Could it be, in the case of Thomas, that Jesus wanted to show the disciples, the church here, he wanted to show them immediately, with their very first try of evangelism, he wanted to show them that salvation is all of Christ? Could it be that Jesus wanted these apostles to remember that their powers of persuasion, their enthusiasm for Christ, can't save anyone? And and even those like Thomas who were so close to being saved. We have people like this in our families. People who are this close, and yet they persist in their unbelief. So we should remember this, that all evangelism is an obedience to proclaim, to tell the truth as they did here, but evangelism also involves a dependence on the intervention of Christ who saves sinners. And I want to be careful here because I don't want to downplay the work of the Holy Spirit who is active in salvation. I simply want to emphasize the work of Christ here. And this is the second important element And the one that is always the case when a person places their faith in Christ, it's because Christ intervened. This is the intervention. Look at 26 and 7. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. 
Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Okay, eight days later. This is an important time marker because it tells us when they were actually meeting. Now, we might miss this now because of the way that we count days, but they would count inclusively. So, for example, Jesus rose on the third day, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We understand that. It's the same here. And so they met again eight days later, but they counted both Sundays. This is another Lord's Day meeting. So it's the following Sunday, probably in the evening, since on the first day of the week, Sunday was a work day for the Jews. The saints have once again assembled to pray and worship on this second Lord's Day. Thomas is there with them this time, and this time the sermon, again, is delivered by Jesus himself, and it's a repeat. Peace be with you. Now, just as a bit of an aside, think of that statement. Peace be with you. Do you think these first Christians ever got tired of hearing that? Peace be with you. with you. Christians have long been the enemies of the state. They have long been surrounded by violence. They've been the targets of persecution, of opposition, of hatred, of scorn. And from the very first Lord's Day, they had to meet quietly behind locked doors for fear of the authorities coming in and shutting them down, telling them that for the good of the whole community, the good of the whole nation, they must not assemble to sing and pray and tell of the wonderful things that he has done. Do you think they ever got tired of hearing Jesus proclaim, peace be with you? They did not. That's why so many of the apostles' letters, the epistles throughout the New Testament, begin with something along the lines of grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we begin every Lord's Day when we come up here, either Ben or myself, usually we begin with something like that, peace be with you. Not from me, from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because outside of here, outside of Christ, there ain't no peace. We know that. I hope you never get tired of hearing this assurance from our Lord. Peace be with you. So let me ask you this as you look at this scripture. Why does the scene in verses 26 and 27 look so similar to the scene the week earlier in verses 19 and 20? Just look up at 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And now look again at verses 26 and 27. Eight days later, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was there with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. 
Then he locked eyes with Thomas. He looked him right in the eyes and he said to him, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. I think these, these days, these accounts, these passages look so similar because John is magnifying the importance of the Lord's day, the day that Christ meets with his assembly, with his people, and the pattern now is established. The pattern that we see continued throughout the New Testament and even to our day, the pattern of setting aside the Lord's day to be reminded of the message, peace be with you, the message that comes from Jesus himself. Now, does all of this mean that people don't come to Christ outside of the church setting? Look at Thomas here. Does all of this mean that people don't come to Christ outside of the church setting? Of course not. But I do believe that we have uh, put so much emphasis on personal evangelism that we've forgotten the importance of trusting in Christ to work within the assembling of the saints, to work in the ordinary means of grace. And as the similarities between these two passages continue here, Thomas, Jesus looks directly at the unbelievers in the room, which is Thomas. He looks directly at him and says, look, touch me, see for yourself. He does for Thomas what he had done for the apostles the week before. He shows them his scars. He gives them the proof that he had been asking for. And we don't know if Thomas actually examined Jesus' hands and side or not. It doesn't say, because that's not the point. The point is Jesus' next command. He says, do not disbelieve, but believe. And that's a command. That's an imperative. It's not a plea with Thomas's will. This isn't Jesus begging with Thomas to accept Jesus into his heart. It's a command. This is Jesus verbally ripping that stone heart out of Thomas's chest and replacing it with a new heart, a heart of flesh. This is Jesus giving life to Thomas. This is Jesus's irresistible grace. Could Thomas at this point have stopped him from saving him? Not a chance. Jesus had every right at this point to walk in there and condemn Thomas for his refusal to believe what the others had told him. Remember what he said in verse 23? Look up there. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And what did Thomas said? I will never believe. Until I see the evidence, I will never believe. Jesus had every right to walk in and say, you should have believed when they told you. But instead, Jesus gives Thomas a new will, a new mind, a new heart. He pours out his grace upon grace on Thomas, a, a grace that cannot be resisted. Jesus speaks, and Thomas is given new life. Jesus intervenes and saves him. How can we be so sure? How can we be so sure that Thomas believes that Jesus uh, saved him right here? Because he immediately responds to Christ's command with this confession, my Lord and my God. The confession, verse 28, 
Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Thomas's doubt, or, or really what we should call it, what it really is, disbelief, has been immediately replaced by faith. Suddenly, Thomas has no more demands, only faith. And this faith, this belief that has been given to him by grace alone, it now compels him to drop all of his objections and immediately confess Jesus as Savior and Lord, or more precisely, my Lord and my God, which are two titles that are inseparable, by the way. My Lord and my God. He confessed, my Lord, and in doing so, he committed himself wholly, fully to Jesus for salvation, for worship, and, and for obedience. It's the confession of Psalm 16, verse 2, which says this, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you, my Lord. Thomas immediately surrenders himself to the sovereignty and mastery of Jesus Christ over himself. And because he is also my God, Jesus is clearly seen here throughout chapter 20, not just by Thomas, but by all of them, by the entire church, as fully God. My Lord and my God, they understood that Jesus was fully man. They understood that he is resurrected for real. He still has the scars, and he, and he also is fully God. They understood that Jesus was God in the flesh. Do you remember God's promise of the new covenant? He had said, and he says this over and over and over again in the scriptures. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. This confession of Thomas is the confession of the church. Because God has intervened, because Christ has intervened and saved us, we are able to say, my Lord and my God. Because God has said, I will be your God, and you will be my people, we are able to say, my Lord and my God. And Jesus responds now with a blessing. Look at verse 29. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Why do you think Thomas was missing the previous Lord's Day? Why do you think he wasn't there? I think the real answer is so that Jesus could save him here. Just like this so that he could remind the disciples, so that he could remind the church that salvation is not only in Christ alone, but it is also by Christ alone. See, while there may be some, maybe some rebuke of Thomas in this, I find that a little bit hard to believe, and I can't wrap my mind around Jesus saying, oh, you believe now? I think Jesus is blessing him, and I think the emphasis is on the blessing here. So there may be a little bit of a rebuke in Thomas because he had seen all of the signs. But what Jesus is really emphasizing is that most who will come to believe in him will not see him as Thomas saw him, and yet they will be blessed. Christ will save them according to his will, according and using his methods. Go back again and read verses 21 to 23. 
He's telling us that he will save those who believe and he will, it will be without sight. It will be by faith. He will use the church to build, to expand the church. I don't think this verse is as much of a, um, as a rebuke of Thomas as it is a statement that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Jesus told Thomas that those who are saved by grace through faith will be blessed. So let me, let me conclude by giving you a list. A brief and incomplete list of blessings. Of these blessings for those who have believed. Your sins will be forgiven. You will receive the free gift of eternal life. You will be adopted into God's family as a dearly beloved child. You will be delivered from the judgment that is to come. You will be resurrected with a glorified body as the resurrected body of Christ. You will have the power to lead a holy and spiritually peaceful life. You will be blessed to be used as an instrument of evangelism for the salvation of others. You will be united to a body of believers that is eternal and stronger than any family could ever be. And you will receive an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled because you will see God face to face. These blessings and so many more are yours when you make Thomas's confession your own confession, my Lord and my God. And if you've done this, then you can worship and wonder at the truth of Jesus' benediction here. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You are blessed by God himself, Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Father, remind us today that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Remind us to be persistent in our evangelism and our sharing of the good news. Remind us, Lord, to be persistent in our prayers for those that we love that just need to trust in you for salvation. Remind us to, make every, to take every opportunity to share a reason for the hope that is within us. And remind us, Lord, that without the intervention of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, no one would be saved. Remind us that the truth of the confession that he, Jesus Christ, is our Lord and our God, that you have brought us into your family through him. And Father, remind us of the blessing that we don't take these things for granted that we would be a people who are thankful and worshipful and eager to share the good news. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.